it had been probably one of the worst, if not the worst, week of their entire lives. They had lost virtually everything, like Joe, except their lives. And it appeared like their lives were probably hanging in the balance, and at the very least were in immediate and impending danger. Roughly three and a half years prior to this week, they had left behind their family, their friends, for some of them a secure financial future, all to follow this man Jesus. Turn to me in your Bibles to Matthew 4, if you would, and we will see the beginning of that story. Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 18. It says in Matthew 4, 18 and following, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father mending their nets. He called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And follow him they did. They followed him for the next three and a half years. They followed him through thick and through thin. They followed him through joy and through pain. They followed him through opposition and acceptance. And they followed him through countless miles and miracles and messages. And all the things, oh, the things they saw and experienced, the things that they saw, some of which no man alive, either before them or after them, would ever, ever have the incredible experience of seeing again. Can you imagine being in that boat? Those of you that have been out, maybe deep sea fishing, maybe in high winds and waves, and to see Jesus all of a sudden say, peace be still, and I mean flat calm like the carpet. Wouldn't that have been incredible? To have accompanied him up the mountain, where Jesus, Luke tells us in chapter 9, was going up to pray, but what we call the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 6. To be up there and hear God speak from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And to see Jesus transfigured before their eyes, just, just some of the incredible things that they saw. And the more they saw, the more they believed. And the more that they believed, the more they were absolutely convinced that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah. What, a, what an incredible three and a half years it had been. Now, some of these things took them a little bit of time to figure out, as is human. The first time we see them caught in a terrible storm at sea in Matthew 8, 23 through 27, it says in that text that this, this sudden tempest arose and it was so great that the boat was covered with the waves, crashing over the boat. It says, literally, the boat was covered with the waves. And when they awakened Jesus, and he 
came to and he suddenly and instantly calmed the sea. It says there that the men marveled. And they said, who can this be that even the winds and the seas obey him? Who, who can this be? The first time around he said, who is this? But we see the progression and growth of their faith by the time they encounter their second storm at sea. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33, where Jesus does essentially the same thing, he calms the sea. You know what they say then? It says then, those who were in the boat came and worshiped him, saying, truly you are the son of God. The first time they said, who is this? The second time they said, this is the son of God. And so we see that their, their faith in him grew and they became more and more convicted as time went by. And if you'll turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter six, we would note that it's shortly thereafter, chronologically, if we put the four Gospels together, that Simon Peter came to the point of his first public confession of Jesus as the Christ. He had seen enough by John six to know who Jesus was and what Jesus had to offer. In John chapter six, verse 66, it says, from that time many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the 12 in verse 67, do you also want to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. By this time, Peter is publicly confessing, we know who you are. Where else are we going to go? Nobody else has what you have. Nobody else is who you are. We understand that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Some short time thereafter, it had been Peter once again. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19, in Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus asked them, who do men say that I am? And then he said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus commended him and said that his father in heaven had revealed that to Peter. And, and so we see that they had come at this point, especially Peter, based on his public confessions, based on his actions, he had come to believe beyond a shadow of a doubt to the point that he and the rest of the apostles had invested everything, their very lives in the fact that he was indeed the son of the living God. They'd put it all out there. And so for three and a half years, they had walked and slept and breathed and eaten all that this man was. They had had an up-close and personal first-hand knowledge of the messages he had preached, the miracles he had performed. They were sure he was the Christ. At one point later on, they didn't understand every aspect of that, but they knew who he was. A Little later on, in his own experience, Peter, reflecting back on what they had actually left behind to follow him, kind of got to the point where he looks ahead involving their investment and he kind of voiced along the lines of, well, what's in it for us? Is it worth it? Turn to me to Matthew 19, 27 through 29. Matthew 19, 27 through 29. Peter gets to the point. where he asked this. Then Peter answered and said to him, 
See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Listen to those words. Let those words sink in. He tells Peter, look, when I come into my kingdom, I'm going to paraphrase this, when he comes into the throne of his glory, he said, you who have followed me, you're going to sit on 12 thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. And they believed that. Peter was asking, what about us? And, and Jesus said, this is what you're going to have. This, this is what I'm going to give you. And so they had this understanding of, of Jesus and, and who he was, and Peter had confessed him as the son of God, and they had invested their lives and their hearts and their futures in him. But now, everything that they had come to believe and put their total faith and trust themselves into, suddenly seems to have disappeared forever into the blood-stained ground around the foot of the cross on the hill of Golgotha. Everything that Jesus had ever promised or said seemed to have, seemed to have somehow just evaporated into the hate-ridden air of Calvary's cruelty. As Peter and the other apostles had seen this day, the one whom they had believed to be the Messiah, they had seen that one brutally beaten. They had seen him scourged. They had seen him crucified virtually butchered right in front of their very eyes. And now, he was dead. He was dead. The one in whom they placed all their hopes was now dead. This, this was unthinkable. This was unbearable. This was unbelievable. Put yourself in their shoes. Forget that we have the rest of the New Testament. Think about what these men had lost that Friday morning in their eyes. It had only been just that past Thursday evening after celebrating the Passover with them that Jesus had gone to the Garden of Gethsemane as he often did to pray and there Judas had showed up with a whole group of people to arrest Jesus. Peter tried valiantly, he'd taken out the sword and he'd cut off Malchus, the servant of the high priest here and he was ready to fight but Jesus had told him, put your sword back in its sheath. At that point, Peter and the rest of the apostles had fled the scene, leaving Jesus to his fate. I want you to imagine yourself as Peter for a few minutes. How'd you like to live with that guilt? It gets worse, not better. That night in the courtyard, three times, Peter was asked, aren't, aren't you one of his followers? And he denied it vehemently, third time with a curse. Let me ask you how you'd have felt at that point. When Jesus, in the midst of everything going on, in the midst of the beating, in the midst of, of everything that Jesus was facing, when you denied him for that third time, or you denied him with that curse, and the rooster crows, and somehow Jesus' eyes find yours, and you're Peter, and he looks at you. Scripture tells us that Peter went outside and wept bitterly. On top of all of this, what, 
what all-consuming, gut-wrenching guilt Peter must have had. How Peter must have hated himself. Have you ever done something as a Christian, you say, oh Lord, why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I think that? Have you? Most people probably could say yes. And now, the guilt, the conscience, the second guessing, and the grief were almost unbearable for Peter. For all he knew, at any time, there could be a contingent show up at the door to arrest him as a follower of Jesus. For all he knew, it was going to be a very long, dark, lonely, dreary, terrifying, and guilt-ridden night, every second seeming like it took an eternity to pass. Have you ever had a night like that? Have you ever had a night even close to that? So deep in doubt, so deep in grief, so deep in pain, so deep in guilt that you're barely able to breathe. Maybe, maybe a night like the divinely inspired pen of King David when he wrote in Psalm 6, 6 through 8, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. If you have, if you have, then you understand where Peter is to some small degree. And if so, the point of tonight's sermon is you need to even more so understand where Jesus is at that point. You need to understand where and what Jesus is and what he is about to do. If you don't understand anything else from this sermon, the lesson you must understand and take from it tonight and never forget in any circumstance ever again is the one that is about to be made. You ready? Here we go. Saturday night must have been an excruciatingly difficult additional night for Peter. Friday night after seeing Jesus die, Saturday night must have been a very difficult sleepless type night for Peter. Then look what we find Sunday morning. Turn to me in your Bibles to Mark 16. Mark 16. I want to make a point tonight. I don't know how many of you have ever connected these dots, but the first time that I did, I thought, that can't be right. It's right. Mark 16, verses 1 through 7. Now, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint Jesus. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, that is Sunday morning, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. <laughs> if the Bible has understatements in it, I'm guessing this probably would be categorized as one. If it does, they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? In my mind's eye, and this is only opinion, but in my mind's eye I can see the, this, this angel saying, see where they laid him. Motioning. But go tell his disciples and Peter, 
guilt-ridden, long night, denying Peter, go tell Peter, my disciples and Peter, that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. Now, I've often made the point, because it's always intrigued me, that the words and Peter are there. God had a special message for Peter. Peter had denied him and done all those things that we've talked about at length before, as well as tonight. And Peter, in his guilt, needed special assurance that Jesus still loved him. And so the angel here says, tell my disciples and Peter. But what I want us to see tonight, there's so much more here in this verse. There's so much more here in this verse. I want you to notice with me, please, in this verse, where does it say Jesus is going to meet them? Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. The message could not be clearer. You need to go meet Jesus in Galilee. He's going to meet you there. That's what you need to do. Galilee. Matter of fact, the title of tonight's sermon is Meet Me in Galilee. You'll see why shortly. Galilee was the same place that Jesus had told them just before his arrest that night that he would meet them or they would meet him after the resurrection. He told them that right in the middle of his discussion with Peter that Peter would deny him three times. Right in the middle of that discussion, in Matthew 26 and verse 32, Jesus had said to them before he was ever arrested that after his resurrection, he would meet them in Galilee. This is key in Galilee. So both Jesus in Matthew 26, 32, and the angel at the tomb, as we just read in Mark 16 and verse 7, both tell his disciples that he will meet them post-resurrection in Galilee, as clear as it can be. In the gospel according to Matthew, the angel even added the word indeed to this statement. In Matthew 28, 7, he will indeed meet you, or you will indeed meet him in Galilee. So here's what I want for us to understand. Aha, okay, watch this very closely. Right here is Jerusalem. Jesus is crucified just outside of Jerusalem. And he has said that after his resurrection, he will meet them in Galilee, which is up here. If you look this up, you've probably all got a chart or graph or map in the, a map in the back of your Bibles. It'll show you the same thing. Once again, Jerusalem's here. Jesus is crucified or outside of Jerusalem. Galilee's up here. Jesus had said, after his resurrection, they were to go to Galilee and he would meet them there. Now, if you take a look at the graph of miles or kilometers, you're gonna find out that from Jerusalem to Galilee is about 60 miles. 60 miles, roughly, give or take, okay? It is roughly 60 miles. 60 miles in those days was about a three-day journey on foot. If they had a good day, they could cover about 20 miles on foot. So Jesus says, have them meet me in Galilee. But here's the thing. Despite what Jesus said, and despite what the angel at the tomb said, that is not where they go or get to before they see him. 
Don't miss that. They get there eventually. Jesus was right. Jesus told the truth. They do meet him in Galilee, but not initially. That's the key. Not initially. They do eventually, but not initially. We know they do eventually in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. It says they, met, they saw him in Galilee. But that's not the first time they see him. Don't miss that. That same Sunday morning that the angel at the tomb told them that Jesus was going before them into Galilee and that they would see him there, that is only mere moments, not three days later, not 60 miles later, but that is only mere moments before these ladies actually see Jesus right there in Jerusalem. He doesn't wait for them to go to Galilee. He doesn't wait for them to make the trip. He comes to them right there in Galilee. Read with me. Follow along. I'll show you. Matthew 28. Look at this. Describing that same resurrection morning, Sunday morning, the, the angel at the tomb has said, have them meet me in Galilee. Uh, we, see, we see Matthew's account of it in Matthew 28, beginning at verse 5. It says, but the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid. I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. You've got to go make this three-day journey to see Jesus. So they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, ran to bring his disciples' word, and as they went to tell his disciples, Jesus met them. Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came and held him by the feet, and they worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. But brethren, what we got to understand is, 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 despite that being the message he gave them, they didn't have to wait till they got to Galilee to see him. The men didn't either. But we'll get there in a minute. <laughs> Apparently, Mary Magdalene from whom he had driven out seven demons, according to Luke 8, 1 through 3, had stayed behind when she got there to the empty tomb that morning. She had stayed behind, weeping and heartbroken, because it appeared as though somebody had taken the body of her Lord Jesus. Have you ever love somebody so much and you, you got the gift for them, the gift, this was the gift for husband, wife, children, whatever. I mean, this was the gift. This is what they'd always wanted. Maybe, maybe you gave your parents, I don't know, a 50th wedding anniversary to Hawaii or whatever. Just some incredible gift, something they'd wanted all their lives, something that, that they needed so desperately or thought they did, something they wanted. And, and have you ever had that experience where you're waiting for that date and you just can't wait any longer to give it to them? Because you know it's just going to light them up. I want you to take a look at this in, in, in that context. I want you to see this. Mary Magdalene, it had been an awful week for the disciples. Mary is standing there. She's weeping. She's heartbroken over the seemingly stolen body of Jesus. And like somebody with this incredible gift, they just can't wait to give to somebody they love so much. Jesus 
doesn't make her wait. Jesus doesn't make her make the three-day trip to Galilee to see him. Apparently, she had suffered enough. And so Jesus shows up right there, right on the scene. Jesus comes to her in her darkest hour and her worst moment of pain. Don't miss that. Look with me in John 11, uh, John 20, beginning at verse 11. You'll see him. You've been saying her long, meet me in Galilee. But, but here's, here's this beautiful, sweet-spirited Mary Magdalene who just loved him so much and she was suffering and struggling because she thought somebody had stolen the body of her Lord. And it's always impressed me in this particular text that she still calls him Lord even though she's seen him die, she still calls him Lord. He's still her Lord no matter what. What devotion, what dedication, even despite what they have seen happen to him. In John 20, verse 11, it says, Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. And they said to a woman, why are you weeping? <clears throat> she said to them, because they've taken away my Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. Mary struggling. Bless her heart. Her faith, calling him Lord, she's struggling. She's, she's having this terrible time with this. She's crying. And Jesus, like that great giver of a gift that just can't make a person wait any longer, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? You know, it's like having it in a little box they got to unwrap. You know, it's just, just that moment. You're just waiting to give them this incredible gift. She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I'll take him away. She was willing to do anything. She was willing to go get the body of Jesus. She just loved him so much. And then Jesus says to her, I, I would have loved to have been there to hear how he said it. So if one of those... One of those times in the Bible you'd like to have heard his voice. Mary. In my mind, that's what Mary. Like, hello. <laughs> Mary. Suppose that lit her up that morning. Jesus met her in her darkest hour, met her at the point of her most pain. He didn't wait, didn't make her wait. He came to her. Mary. She turned and said, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go tell my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples she'd seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Remember, they've been hearing right along, Galilee, 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 Galilee. And she shows up and says, I've already seen him. He, he's already come to me and talked to me. But there's a lot happens between John chapter 20 verse 18 when he meets Mary Magdalene and verse 19 evening of that same Sunday there's a lot happens in between there that that John doesn't tell us but Luke does Luke tells us in much greater length what happens between that early morning meeting with Mary Magdalene and that evening when it was the first day of the week and the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews when Jesus came and stood and said, peace be with you. There's a whole afternoon's events in there that, that John doesn't record, but Luke does, and I want you to see them. Turn with me to Luke 24, starting at verse 13. Luke fills us in on the afternoon's events. 
And remember, it's that same Sunday. It's that same first day of the week. It's that same resurrection day. You can't travel 60 miles in a day in those days. You can't get to Galilee. That afternoon, right after the angel had said, have, have them meet me in Galilee, look what happens in Luke 24, beginning at verse 13. It says there, now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, or Amos, however you prefer to pronounce it, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. It wasn't 60 miles, it was, it was right outside of Jerusalem. It wasn't way up there. As they walked together, I'm sorry, as they, and they, I can say this, and they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. I love this. I love this. It's like, it's like waiting for that person to, it's waiting to reveal that present, waiting to reveal that, that which is just the joy of their hearts. You've got it and you want to give it to them, and, and, and so it's, it's wrapped and, and you're just waiting, and, and here he is. Here he is. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? They were sad. They were brokenhearted. Then one of those whose name, then the one whose name was Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which happened there in these days? And he said, what things? And they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth who was a prophet, mighty indeed, in word before God and all the people, how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping, can, can you, there's another one of those phrases I'd like to have heard. If you listen close in your own mind as you read that, you can almost hear the despair. They're talking about this Jesus and how great he was, but how he was condemned to death and crucified. But, you know, we were hoping. Didn't work out that way, but we were hoping. We got disappointed, but we were hoping. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yet, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early, that same day, astonished us. When they didn't find his body, they came saying they had also seen visions of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ too have suffered these things and enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the things, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. When they drew near to the village where they were going, he indicated he would have gone further, but they constrained him saying, abide with us. It's towards evening and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. This is Sunday evening approaching the night. And it came to pass as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, didn't our hearts burn within us while we, he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? They walked a seven-mile journey up there. It's night's approaching, if not right on top of them. And then they get up at that very hour. They make the seven-mile trip back to, to Jerusalem and found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, the Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Now, I want you to understand something right here. As, as these two disciples that had gone to Emmaus or Emmaus and, and had returned to where the 11 had gathered, there's a conversation going on and somebody said, hey, the Lord has appeared to Simon that afternoon, earlier on that afternoon, at some point, we're not given details. 
We're not given details of, of Peter's meeting or Jesus' meeting of Peter, but we do know this. Jesus did not make him wait for Galilee. Peter was too heavily burdened. And that afternoon, early evening, at some point, the disciples were discussing how the Lord had appeared to Simon. Later on in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 5, Paul would confirm this fact that he appeared first to Simon. If you're Simon, you've denied him, all those things. He looks at you, you go outside and weep bitterly. You probably haven't slept much in the past two nights. You're wondering, you're wrestling, you're struggling with guilt, you're struggling with despair. And Jesus comes to you personally. Jesus knows your pain. Jesus knows your struggle. Jesus came to them and met them at their point of deepest pain. Verse 35, and they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And as they told these things, Jesus stood in the midst of them and said to them, peace to you. Peace to you. Jesus, for whatever reason, I am not trying to figure out the mind of Jesus that is way above my capability. I do not know the reason why he came to them unless it is because he knew they needed him then and there. He came to them in their struggle. He came to them. They had lost everything. He came to them at the point of their deepest pain to comfort them. He either could not or did not want to wait for them to have to make the three-day trip to Galilee. Maybe Jesus knew, knowing all things, that they just didn't have it in them to make that trip. But whatever the reason was, he came to them when they needed him most. And that sends chills down my back. That is the God that is your God and my God. Jesus either could not or did not want to wait for them to make the three-day trip to Galilee in order to share the great hope and joy and peace and message that he had for them. Now, of course, they eventually do go to Galilee. Jesus has said, meet me in Galilee. Please do not go home tonight and say, Doug said that Jesus didn't tell him the truth. No, no. They did eventually go to Galilee. Bible says that in Matthew 28, 16 through 20. So understand it. But also understand, he didn't wait. They hurt. And he didn't wait. The main point you need to remember from tonight is he met them at their point of greatest need and greatest pain. He was the one who did not wait to come and comfort his grieving disciples in their darkest hour. He was the one who hurried to them when they hurt the worst and they needed him most. I almost want to stop this sermon and just have a prayer. What an awesome God. When they were just too weary or too terrified to make the move to Galilee, Jesus was only far too ready to make his move and presence known to them right in Jerusalem, right where they were, right in the middle of their panic and their pain and their fear. I want you to really think about that for a minute, long and hard. Then I want you to think about this. 
Hebrews 13 and verse 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What does that mean? That means that our Savior is the same one. As he understood them, he understands us. As he wanted to be there with them in their pain in their darkest hour, so too does he want to with us. He does not change. Psalm 46, 1 and 2 says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. God not only inhabits the universe, the, 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 the earth is not just his footstool, but that psalm tells us, Psalm 46, 1 and 2, God is our refuge and strength, a very present, present, right with me, a very present, present now in my struggle, help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 5 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves receive from God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Just like Jesus was with his first century disciples, he's the same Jesus with us today, with his 21st century disciples. He has not changed. And Peter, in particular, after that horrible week, after that horrible, terrible, awful week when it seemed like his whole world was just ripped out from under him, when he was certainly guilt-ridden, when he was outside weeping bitterly, when surely what must have been sleepless nights, that Peter, the Lord appeared to him that Sunday at some point, as we are told in Luke 23 and 1 Corinthians 15, 5, sometime that Sunday afternoon, Jesus appeared to Peter, came to Peter in the midst of Peter's heartbrokenness over his own failures. Probably nobody understood that a whole lot better than Peter did, the same Peter who would write, and I want you to turn there in your Bibles, even though I'm going to quote from the ESV, one of my favorite texts in the whole Bible. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Perhaps no Bible writer puts this truth better, any better forward, than the beloved apostle Peter, probably for obvious reasons, probably because of Peter's own firsthand experience with it. From the ESV, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11, listen to this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Don't, don't, don't take that to mean the whole church. Yes, he loves the whole church. Don't take that to mean all of us in general, although it's true in that sense. What does it say? It says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Joel Powell. Connor Elward. He cares for you. All of us. Take it personal. Sorry, gentlemen, don't mean to pick on you. Just, just picking names. He cares for you. That's why you cast off. If, if, if anybody understood this, it was Peter. Understood how Jesus wants to meet you at the point of your pain. When you're struggling, he wants to be there with you. 
Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then comes that incredibly beautiful clincher for you and I. The beautiful clincher of the entire evening sermon. That lesson that I hope you will take home tonight and I hope you will never, ever, ever, ever forget for as long as you live. And that is the lesson from the one who wants to meet you where you are at the point of your greatest pain and suffering. Look at verse 10. And the reason I use the ESV is because it translates this real personally. It says, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you, take that personal, to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself. The ESV puts that in there. Will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you as an individual. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. I don't know where you are in your life tonight. I don't know what you're struggling with. We talked this morning that we are a group of weary, worn, battle-scarred soldiers of the cross, all fighting the good fight every day, and how we all have our personal struggles that we have to deal with, and we do. And I, I don't know where your point of greatest pain lies. And if I did, chances are I couldn't do anything about it. I just don't have that kind of strength. We're all dealing with something. But I do know this. I do know that Jesus Christ knows your deepest heartache, your worst struggle, whatever it is, your deepest point of pain, when you are trapped in doubt and confusion and you feel like your world has been ripped apart, Jesus Christ not only knows, but he wants to meet you right there where you are. Sometimes we say, well, I just don't feel as though Jesus is with me. Then pray for God to open your eyes so you'll see him. Is it the same Jesus? Did he meet them where they needed him? Did he go to them in their pain? He hasn't changed. If we don't see him, maybe we need to pray that God will open our eyes to him being right there with us. God help us to have open eyes and to have the wisdom to see Jesus because he hasn't changed. May you allow him to have total and complete dominion over you and your life and your struggles this week through his word. No matter what pain and suffering you may face and may you allow him to comfort you and strengthen you. May you have eyes like the prophet's servant. May you have eyes to understand that more are those with us, more are those with us, that Jesus is with us when we struggle. He is so anxious to be a part and to heal and to help. The only way that he won't do that is if we don't want him to. Well, if we all want him to, and I believe we all do, maybe the reason we don't see him is because we need our eyes opened. But I'm telling you right now, Jesus wants to meet you where you hurt the most and comfort you the way nobody else can.
no matter where you are. And he's not going to wait for you to make the three-day trip <laughs> to Galilee. What an awesome God. Tonight, if you're not part of that family of God and you would be baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, we'd love to do that. But if you've already done that and you're struggling and you need the prayers of the church that your eyes of faith will be open to the fact that Jesus' love is so great for you that he wants to be there with you, that he wants to help, that he wants to, he wants to, to give you that joy. He wants to spring that love upon you and you need better eyes to see it. If you would have the prayers of the church to see it or to know it better or to remember it next time you struggle, we'd love to pray for you as well. If you have a need tonight, don't wait. Let us help as we stand and sing.